Gresham College presents A Green and Pleasant Land A Green and Pleasant Land by Professor Carolyn Roberts, Frank Jackson, Professor of the Environment. Um, <clears throat> good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and uh, thank you very much for turning out on, on an evening that might have had other attractions, I don't know. Um, welcome to my what is my final Gresham College lecture for this year on environmental themes. And um, this evening I want to really to take a stroll around some of the controversies playing out in rural areas. And uh, I want to look at particularly at the nature of the arguments and the role of science and scientists in addressing them. Uh, and you'll have to forgive me because I'm only going to concentrate on one or two, more than one or two, three or four controversies. And if your favourite controversy is not there, then I'm, uh, I have to apologise for that. But you could, of course, always raise it in, in questions. Um, you might have expected this one. Uh, bovine tuberculosis is a very serious disease and uh, the UK rates of infection are amongst the highest in Europe. Many of you will know this, but dairy cattle become thin, fevered, they cough and they eventually die. And whilst they're ill, their milk yield falls and the disease can also be passed on to humans, although that happens very infrequently today since the advent of uh, pasteurisation. Badgers are widely believed to be one vector for the disease, and some are undoubtedly infected. The route was previously assumed to be direct from cow to cow, one cow coughing on another, as it were. That vector and the magnitude of that vector is still the subject of some debate. Now, as a direct result of centuries of persecution by baiters, badgers and their sets, and to some extent their foraging grounds, are protected by environmental legislation. Put simply, it's actually an offence to kill or injure a badger, or to damage or destroy or interfere with its set. And it's also an offence to allow a dog to enter a set. According to the Department of uh, Environment, Food and Rural Affairs, DEFRA, a typical tuberculosis outbreak produces about £34,000 worth of damage, with £500 million incurred over the last decade. 26,000 cattle were slaughtered in 2013 alone. I don't have the latest figure, actually. Following the policy of test and slaughter, if the cow proves to be a reactor, it's slaughtered. Places, um, however... Uh, having said that, that policy uh, didn't control bovine TB everywhere. Places such as Devon and, Cornwall, uh, Devon and Gloucestershire didn't show the same reductions as elsewhere. And in addition, the mechanism for badgers passing disease onto cattle remains unclear. So a programme of cattle movement controls, vaccination and badger culling by trapping and shooting has now been run for several years. TB, as we've said, is a very key issue in areas of England where animal husbandry is important. And you can see on the maps here, published in 2011 by DEFRA, the spread of the disease in recent years. And it's a, it's a pretty alarming picture. Except that it's wrong. The diagram is wrong. And when it was questioned by academics and scientists, the diagram was subsequently withdrawn. The maps were supposed to represent the escalating number of cases of TB. However, the little asterisk at the top right, which you probably can't really see, uh, implies that only confirmed cases of TB are shown, and that's cases which are, uh, which are uh, where, actually where visible lesions have been found in, in cattle. In the confusing jargon, these are OTF withdrawn cases, or possibly not, because when we look at the bottom uh, the red text across the bottom, you, it purports again to be the total number of animals that reacted to the TB test, but not actually the OTF withdrawn cases, which the upper numbers, uh, or the dots apparently refer to. Uh, the numbers would be very, very different. The numbers of dots on the map is also misleading, and it suggests, in fact, if, uh, for, for uh, the diagrams on the right, the more recent ones, that most of Wales and the West Country is subject to controls, which is actually incorrect. In Devon, for example, only about 9% of farms had confirmed TB, whereas the map implies that Devon was in, almost entirely covered. Now, 
TB, of course, is a problem, but it's perhaps not quite such a problem as suggested by this diagram. And we must wonder, inevitably, why the data was ever allowed to be published. The data came out in 2011. The badging culling programme started in earnest in 2013. Killing badges is very controversial, and it was marked by public protest that may or may not have been lawful. Again, opinion is divided. There was allegedly sabotage, intimidation by proponents of all sides of the arguments, and so on. Now, badges are very attractive, and they are very shy. Early studies had suggested that 10% of the badges actually shot by professionally trained hunters were not recovered. And of those that actually were seen to fall, many of them took up to five minutes to die. And the possibility of painfully wounded badgers led to considerable concern about whether this was a humane solution. As it happened, an independent expert panel, a scientific panel, also found the first year of the trial to be ineffective as well as potentially unethical. Uh, but the panel was disbanded. But the culling programme continued supported by the Country Landowners Association and the National Farmers Union, amongst others. Five months ago, the government released the results of the 2014 Badger Cull in Gloucestershire and Somerset, the two trial areas. Faced with a sustained campaign of protests and, and problems in implementing the, the culling, the second year of this, what is to be a four-year trial, resulted in killing fewer than half of the minimum number of badgers estimated to be required for success. In Gloucestershire, that was 274 badgers, actually. Clearly, that's not going to be enough anyway to achieve success, uh, and the impact on reducing bovine TB will be very slight, because the remaining badgers are likely to spread out. Now, in Somerset, the initial target was set, according to some experts, very, very low. The target number of badgers to be culled was set very low, and it was exceeded. And that prompted the government chief vet to say that in the right circumstances, culling could work. The target was hit. Conversely, and interestingly, the chief scientist for Natural England, which is the advisory body that is actually part of DEFRA, uh, suggested that the trial had been an epic failure. An earlier study in 2008, uh, as I indicated earlier, had suggested that without, unless a majority of the badgers were killed, these infected escapees would simply occupy, move into adjacent areas and spread the disease further. Now, the, the suggestion for many observers is that the government-initiated badger culling programme to reduce bovine TB is not backed by science, is ridiculously expensive, and is inhumane. And they see it as a sop to the farmers, many of whom will be conservative voters. I am slightly anxious about mentioning that tonight. But, however, uh, that's the view. The National Farmers Union president, by contrast, said that the Somerset results, where 341 badgers were known to have been shot, demonstrated the need to extend the cull more widely in order to support hard-pressed family farms. And he also commented on the policing of the saboteurs, because that had had the effect of increasing the cost of killing each badger from something over £4,000 to something over £5,000 per badger. For the coming years, he said, culling would be cheaper if the training costs for the professional hunters were ignored and the sabotage was reduced because that was the reason for the policing. And he also commented that if the cull were moved to the spring, it could include badger cubs, which are easier to catch and shoot. Animal scientists, by contrast, say that that wouldn't reduce the incidence of TB because fewer cubs are infected, only about half the number, 8%, as opposed to 15% of adults, and some would anyway die or not reach adulthood. So if the target number, even if the target number were killed, if it included cubs, the impact on TB would be less. This year, the, the Country Landowners Association is still supporting uh, culling, which is, and it's likely to restart in June. So I might just say watch this space on that one. But you might want to watch the way in which the Badger Trust have represented the range of protesters 
uh, in an extract from their video. Like a Gresham audience today, actually. Open your eyes. Britain's badgers need your help. The government appears to be sweeping science aside and has the badgers in its sights. Soon, thousands and thousands of them will be killed in our countryside, needlessly. Stand up for badgers. Please sign the petition and write to your MP to help stop the cull. Thank you. Okay, now, what do we learn from that, not just the video, but the story? The issue is actually being driven by demand for high levels of agricultural productivity and the need to produce large amounts of high-quality meat and dairy products cheaply. Who ultimately forces that is an open question. It might be put down to supermarkets, for example, or to us corporately as a society. And then if we look at the proponents in the debate, on the one hand, we've got most of the animal farming community mostly rural dwellers who, contrary to popular opinion, are not particularly wealthy. And for many of them, the welfare of their cows is very dear to their hearts. And in any case, we know that healthy herds are necessary for the economic survival of whole districts. By and large, that group are backed by key decision makers in DEFRA, although not everybody, as we've seen, including the vets and by groups of people interested in hunting with dogs and shooting. On the other hand, we've got a loose coalition of biologists, animal rights activists, scientists from natural England, and many city dwellers. We can see the polarised views of the respective parties very clearly on postings in social media, whilst the former view the latter as ignorant tree-hugging ne'er-do-wells, the latter groups see the pro-culling uh, pro community as bloodthirsty millionaire landowners and their hangers-on, with a political agenda that goes beyond badger eradication and well into the territory of what I do on my land is nobody's business but mine. You can see in the video that we just saw the Badger Trust trying to counter that opinion by projecting images of what uh, people who look very you know, ordinary people, children, older people, disabled people and so on. So there's, there's a lot of manipulation uh, going on there uh, in the media. The whole issue is certainly wicked, as characterised by researchers Rittle and Weber in 1973, and it involves complexity, uncertainty, multiple stakeholders and viewpoints, uh, competing values, a lack of political endpoints, and ambiguous terminology. It's a rural dispute that is neither green nor pleasant. Now, we, I'm going to pick up a number of other rural disputes uh, and interpret them in the same way. Some of them uh, I have up there, uh, and we'll return to them as well. But we can also see from the, the things on the screen there that general legislation, agri-environmental schemes, and the multiplicity of voluntary stewardship schemes we have in the UK are not sufficient to deal with the problems that are appearing. EU-driven Land use legislation, for example, relating to habitat preservation is largely irrelevant in the case of the badgers. Badgers are a legally protected species, but the law has been set aside by government to allow culling. In my view, in this case, people are making political cases based largely on their world views and not on the basis of the, of the science, and hence the problem continues without much prospect of a solution. Now, it is obvious that the limitations of, of scientific evidence in policymaking need recognising. Science is usually necessary but not sufficient for sound decision making and it doesn't provide all the answers to rural or any other environmental challenges because many environmental systems are very uncertain or very complex 
And in dealing with complex or wicked problems, we have to take into account absolute and relative values. Not everything can have a number attached to it. We have to make judgments about their weighting and public debate has to be taken into account as well. In practice, we see science playing only a small role in many of the debates, which are being driven by people and organisations with different fundamental priorities. It might be argued that scientists could just present facts, if indeed these facts ever exist in isolation, and then they should allow policymakers to take decisions based on the facts rather than the scientists arguing any particular course of action. Another expert from Natural England suggests that scientists must respect politicians' rights to operate within territory or boundaries created by the scientific evidence, but that good policy is only evidence-informed rather than evidence-based. The science is one part of the, uh, part of the argument. Interestingly, the term used by government is often evidence-based, not evidence-informed. Um, so our researcher in Natural England suggests that scientists should be clear, of course, whether they're acting as advocates of particular policies or what he calls honest brokers who can clarify the range of policy options. Of course, though, science doesn't flow in a linear way directly into policy. You can have the science, but it doesn't automatically just pass into the minds or, or the laptops or whatever of policymakers. We can see this in the run-up to the Paris climate change negotiations later this year, where it's clear from 99% uh, of the scientists' opinions that a rapid agreement on action to reduce carbon emissions is required, but it's clearly not going to be that easy to agree the tactics on getting there. So the value systems of different groups differ. And the pathway of the conversation is often very complex, very convoluted, and very contested. And I've, as I've argued in previous talks as well, science-based professional organisations are very many, frequently competing, and have very weak relationships amongst them. So that produces a cacophony of voices all trying to inform government. I only really talked about one of them in the case of the, of the Badgers. So we need better tools to facilitate dialogue and broker discussions. Now, I've, I've finished showing you the picture of a nice rural area. Let's have a look at some more controversies. There are many environmental laws uh, affecting the British countryside, legal and voluntary protection of scenic and habitat areas, safeguards for particular species, restrictions on the development of suburbs, uh, animal welfare legislation, and so on. The evidence suggests that despite this, the UK countryside is still being damaged by practices that are reducing its biodiversity, increasing downstream flooding, for example, damaging soil fertility, and making our scenery less diverse. And I'm going to touch on one or two of those issues as I go on. At face value, it sounds like an orgy of destruction being wrought by rapacious landowners um, who don't have any regard for the worldviews of other people and fly in the face of the science. But clearly that's probably too simple an explanation. Most of the controversies that we look at in rural areas are playing out in what contemporary commentators call the food, water, energy nexus. They're talking about three, uh, three important areas food, water and energy, where there is competition for land and increasing demands on, uh, on supply. We might actually, and I would certainly add waste into that nexus, the management of waste or the, potentially the use of waste uh, as, a resort because that, uh, as a resource, because that is also sitting somewhere centrally in that diagram. Biological wastes, for example, have value as potential energy sources, as we know. The figures on the slide there are, are global, they come from the, uh, mostly from the Food and Agriculture Organisation, but the same elements in this food, water, energy nexus are playing out in the UK countryside. Sorry? Yeah, it's 2009, it's just at the bottom of the diagram, you see there, it's a diagram from John Beddington, the chief scientist. Yeah. Um, now, um, Today's farmers nurture uh, many, many crops. 
animal and uh, vegetable products, timber, biofuels, energy, energy from waste, and so on. They've got, um, they are um, competing for territory. I've got my slides in the wrong order here. We'll come back to that one in a minute. So here's the slide showing um, some of the things that compete for, for space in rural areas. Uh, farmers are farming all sorts of things, as we see here, including caravans and um, solar panels and uh, wind farms and so on. Uh, I'll come back to that picture on the far right later on, so if you want to just look at it now and remember that one, I'll, I'll return to that in a minute. Um, brokering the competition between them requires an informed judgment to be exercised. Now, let me go back to the previous slide. Taking the issue, of, first of all, of biodiversity, biodiverse systems are generally regarded as a very important characteristic of a sustainable planet and necessary for a variety of reasons, including human health and well-being. In the past 50 years or so, declines have been recorded in many native animal and plant species, particularly associated with the changes to UK lowland agriculture. In the second half of the 20th century, it's, as we've said, agricultural policy has been focusing on food production. It's a legacy of the First and Second World Wars. And that is predicated upon intensification of cropping and grazing as well. That policy has been extremely successful in the sense that it has delivered high levels of food imports. It's brought us ample chief nutrition. And for most of the last 50 years, I think it would be true to say that few people in the UK have gone to bed hungry. The changes typically involve the drier and lower east of the country, which focuses on arable farming, whilst the western uplands evolved over that period increasingly towards grassland and livestock farming. So it's a polarisation that has left temporary grassland, what we might call grass lees, and the mixed farm much less prominent than they were in the blend previously. You can see the, diversion, uh, the, the divergence on the slide here because we've got the sharp, a sharp regional contrast between the concentrations of arable, wheat and, uh, and oilseed rape there, which is one of the uh, things used in biofuels, versus the blue areas, which are, uh, with the exception of the Irish Republic, which it, for which the, we don't have the data here, but uh, the blue areas are, tend to be more dominated by livestock production. Now, the typical... Patterns associated with the intensification of arable farming to deliver a successful policy on food supply, food security, include a range of things. They include larger fields, the removal of hedges, simpler crop rotations, and a move from spring to autumn cropping, more efficient harvesting, and sealed grain storage in the silos that you see all around the countryside now that are replaced, largely replaced um, uh, haystacks that we used, to, we used to see. Crops are much less diverse than previously, and fertiliser use, especially the use of artificial nitrates, has escalated. It's roughly doubled in the last, few, uh, the last 40 years. Phosphates are also very widely used, and that's a concern in its own right, since phosphate resources are finite, and getting them back out of drainage water is very expensive. Pesticide use has also increased, and although some have now been banned on the basis of long- or short-term toxicity, broad-spectrum pesticides are widely used in all, blue, uh, in all the areas that were in yellow on that map. A typical UK crop now receives over five doses of pesticide while it's being grown. Herbicides are also used even on grasslands to maintain the optimum density of, of species that support um, sheep and cattle. Irrigation has increased as well, especially in those eastern areas where water is anyway in short supply. In the grasslands, artificially drained areas or land drainage of wetlands increased dramatically in the period from 1940 till 1987 when the grants for doing that stopped. 40% of that involved converting what was previously known as rough grazing to arable land, and it was done through putting in deep pipes uh, and, and ditching along field boundaries. That's the process known, perhaps you might say euphemistically, as improvement. 
Uh, it was associated with a switch away from hay to silage, changes away from things like crops like barley towards maize, increased numbers of animals uh, per unit area, and the increased use of uh, things called avamectins. Those are worming products which are given to sheep and cattle to keep them free of parasites, but which carry through into the dung and then on into the ground. Uh, so they're designed to kill worms and they end up on, on the soil. And we don't really have a good idea about the consequences of that. Now, if we, as I have done on here, isolate a single shift in agricultural policy, and, it, and, and it's a very complex system here, if we take, in this case, lowland uh, field sizes, there have been significant changes in a number of parameters that are usually ascribed to the loss of hedgerows. So the uncultivated headland areas disappear, the areas around the fields. As the hedgerows vanish, biodiversity drops, and the assumption is that many insects, mammals and birds lose habitat for nesting and resting, and they lose food supplies such as berries and nuts. Butterflies, for example, appear to be badly affected. But the news isn't all bad. Um, some flying insects prefer open countryside, including some important pollinators. So the issue is complex, scientifically, and that gives a space for the arguments to be exploited by different interest groups. If we took a, another shift, land drainage that I mentioned earlier, if we take into, uh, if we consider the artificial drainage of wetlands, such as marshlands and moorlands and floodplains, the, the, um, uh, the seasonal wetlands that used to be managed as water meadows, for example, were drained. Many of them were drained in the later part of the 20th century. Um, we lose habitats that those wetlands afforded for certain bird species and certain invertebrates. And as the humus-rich soils dried out, carbon was released into the atmosphere. Overall, however, reed beds and the habitat for otters and water voles might actually have increased. And uh, the policy, as I mentioned earlier, was advantageous for food production. And despite the strong opposition of farmers, it was only reversed in the 1990s on ecological grounds. Now, at first sight, uh, intensification in its various guises might appear to be universally damaging, except insofar as food production is concerned. Certainly, some native species have declined dramatically. Some moths and butterflies, for example, have shown very alarming reductions in those southern lowland farming areas to the point at which they might become extinct. One of the UK research councils uh, funded research by the independent company Rothamsted Research, and they identified huge falls in moth species, uh, the ones shown on here. The names are, are wonderful. And I have to say, I don't actually like moths very much, so um, I don't know about the rest of you, so I've got mixed feelings on the, on the figures here. But um, we've got some big falls in some of those rather unpleasant-looking creatures there. Um, some things have gone altogether. Uh, the middle one, I'm not at all sorry about, actually, but uh, um, it, the wonderfully named uh, the bordered Gothic there has disappeared entirely. It, and these are lowland species. And so it would be tempting to assume that agricultural practices, agricultural po uh, pollution and associated habitat loss are to blame, particularly since the losses are greatest where the intensification is also greatest, as far as we know. Now, I want to just go into a little bit of science here. Actually, what we're doing there is we're using something called an ergodic hypothesis. It's something to drop into your pub conversation, you know, an ergodic hypothesis. We have replaced an analysis over time with an analysis over space. Because, for the most part, we don't have the resources or the length of the records to observe things changing over decades, most research projects are often funded only for four, three, four, five years. A typical PhD is three years, and you don't get much data in that time. Um, so we, instead of that, we observe things in different places, and we make the assumption that the space adequately can uh, replace time in, in our analysis. That's one step from 
uh, one step removed from what may actually have happened, of course, and it is a potential source of scientific uncertainty. Now, in the case of some of these things, um, there is some longer-term data. It's not very long-term data, even this one. This is uh, data for a butterfly called the wall brown butterfly, and you can see uh, there's quite a lot of variability year on year, but it does appear to be in decline everywhere other than Catalonia. Um, and the, the UK figure there is the, uh, is the purple one. Oh, we seem to have lost the, the key to it, but the, the UK figure is the, is the purple one there. Now, um, uh, that's a very rare record. We don't often get records like that. Um, so we might assume from that that the scientific bio biodiversity picture is not particularly complex and not particularly contested and is better accepted than might otherwise have been the case. However, if we go back to the moths, um, some species are actually increasing uh, in quite startling figures. Of course, you get very startling figures when you start with very small numbers to be, uh, in the first place. Um, so some of these, uh, some of these ones, the, uh, some of these moths, the least carpet and Blair's shoulder knot, don't uh, infer any, uh, any political uh, affiliations there, um, have gone up really dramatically, seven, over 7,000%. And uh, in the case of the least carpet moth, 74,000%. Um, I don't know what they were, but I, I'm imagining there were about two, and now there are some <laughs> thousands. Um, however, those are mostly recent immigrants. So although you might say the science says we don't know, it's contested, some of, some of them are going up still. Um, the science is, uh, is, is still contested. These are recent immigrants to the UK, most of them, and um, actually most of those, uh, uh, they seem to like to live mainly on, uh, on things like uh, Leyland Cypress in, 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 in urban settings, you know, the big, um, uh, big uh, Leylandi in your, in your garden. So it's a bit, it's a bit uh, depressing even with that data. Um, as I say, like me, probably many people, even people here, are not very fond of moths, so I don't, uh, I don't detect any likely policy response to this kind of scientific evidence, at least in the near future. If we go to birds, though, it's a different picture. If we look at birds, anybody... Oh, I've put it up what it is. It's a Eurasian curlew. Um, many devotees. The Royal Society for the Protection of Birds is a national voluntary organisation with a huge level of public support and significant research capacity. Um, does anybody know the mem like to speculate on the membership number? It's over a million. They have over a million members. Uh, 200,000 youth members, so it's not a, an, uh, a, an organisation for elderly people. They have 1,300 staff, 18,000 volunteers, and, of course, they're supporting record levels of interest in birdwatching and in twitching, which I'm told is kind of what's going on on the archers at the moment, people trying to spot particularly unusual birds and uh, trailing across the country to go and look for them. Um, you might think from that that all is well, or should be well, with bird communities, but it's apparently not the case. Some UK bird populations and some specific species are apparently in a precipitous decline despite the EU birds directive, a piece of legislation and one of the very few pieces of legislation that actually preserves habitats. I mentioned curlews. The, um, the RSPB, uh, sorry, yeah. the RSPB say that the UK might hold between 17 and 25% of the global breeding population for this, this bird a quarter of all the um, breeding population then. Between uh, 1995 and 2011, the breeding survey showed a decline of 45% in breeding abundance. And um, there is, I think I've got the, yeah, got the quote here, within the overall decline, there is some variability between regions in how populations are faring. So, as it says on here, detailed local studies have implicated nest predation and low breeding productivity as causes of decline. 
However, the changes in the vegetation structure through changing grazing pressure in the uplands may also have an effect on habitat suitability. Now, you'll notice the hesitation in the words that I've got there in red. It's a caution about causality. What is causing this change? What's actually causing the decline? Understanding the causes and the possible mechanisms of those declines in upland curlew population is important if we want to develop an effective conservation strategy for this species. And it's obviously important that we know, we know more. So how were those scientific conclusions arrived at? Well, it's that ergodic hypothesis again, that space-time substitution. And the RSPB tells the curlew story in this particular way. They say, curlews are, on average, more successful in nesting and surviving on sites where gamekeepers kill predators such as foxes. So you get more curlews when gamekeepers are around in large numbers and kill commensurately large numbers of foxes. Where there are populations on sites with conifers around them, um, uh, around the grazing areas where the curlews actually breed, they breed on moorland, but where you've got um, conifers around them, their nesting success is lower. And foxes are also more common in those settings. Now, those results suggest that changes in upland land use are associated with curlew declines, with predation, that is, the effect of the foxes, as the likely mechanism. But they also suggest that the role of gamekeepers is beneficial in managing land for the benefit of curlews. Now, of course, that's not the main purpose of gamekeepers. The main purpose of gamekeepers is to, uh, is to support and maintain the land so that it's suitable for shooting and fishing. Gamekeeping, of course, is not a profession which animal protection supporters are comfortable with. Um, and it could be that they will prefer not to see that evidence that gamekeepers are one of the things that are responsible for promoting curlews. Um, and of course, if we want to add to the complexity, scientific findings about the apparent benefits of gamekeepers may also ignore impacts of other shifts, such as, say, climate change or increased use of pesticides or whatever. Now, that's the, that's the curlew story. There are other birds in decline. House sparrows, for example, who like to live near people, uh, approximately 60% of those have been lost since 1970 or thereabouts, according to the RSPB and researchers at the University of Exeter. That's about 150 million birds have been lost since 1970, or the population has reduced by 150 million birds um, at any one time. Losses are observed in farming areas, allegedly as a result of some aspect of intensification um, or perhaps suburbanisation. But in fact, the biggest losses are in large city centres like London, Edinburgh and Glasgow. And so what's being said there is it's the loss of food supplies. Sparrows are largely sedentary. The ones in my garden don't seem to be, but apparently they are. Um, and uh, they take quite a long time to recolonise. Similarly, starlings, they've seen their numbers have fallen by 45 million in the same period. Skylarks, whose distinctive song obviously is very important in our culture, it's uh, inspired Wordsworth and Shelley, they've declined by 37 million and willow warblers by 34 million. But blackcaps, robins, blue tits, blackbirds and shiftchaffs have all increased in their numbers. Um, some of the rarer species, like marsh harriers and ravens and buzzards and, in fact, stone curlews, have also uh, increased in recent years, perhaps the result of conservation strategy, and they are legal, those latters are legally protected. So it's a complex picture again. It's not a straightforward relationship between agricultural intensification and the loss of particular species or birds as a whole. Honeybees are in a similar category, though in that case they are an essential element of the UK's food security. Um, now in this case, we don't even have a historic bee baseline, as you might say. We don't know how many bees there used to be. Uh, the numbers of managed honeybees, bees in hives, are thought to be falling. 
And by early in 2014, last year, scientists at Reading University were saying that uh, the numbers of colonies were too low properly to pollinate crops. And what they said was something like 7 billion bees were effectively absent without leaves. 7 billion bees, okay. Now, crops like oilseed rape are reliant on insect pollination. And so now we have, to we have to place much greater reliance on wild pollinators such as bumblebees and hoverflies. And we think that their diversity and numbers are probably also falling. Now we can, in that case, we can put an estimated replacement value on that pollination service provided by the bees. It's a value on what we might call an ecosystem service, the service provided by the bees. And the Reading scientists estimated that if you wanted to replace the wild pollinators with honeybee, honeybee pollinators, it would cost you about £1.8 billion each year. Now, again, the reasons for the decline are controversial. Uh, pesticides and habitat loss are, as usual, implicated. And particularly, the 97% reduction in wildflower meadow that's occurred since 1930. There's also uh, been concern about pesticides called neo, neo, neonicotinoids. Um, they are banned. They were banned in Europe last winter, although actually the Euro, um, UK farmers and politicians opposed that ban and suggested that there was insufficient scientific evidence to justify it. And uh, that, of course, those chemicals were vital for pest control and for food security. So the government then, and actually refuting allegations of conspiracy with the agri-tech business sector, they established a research programme led by pesticide manufacturers to take field, undertake field tries, trials. They also put £900 million of EU funding into a countryside stewardship scheme to restore wildflower meadows and hedgerows and exhorted the public to uh, adopt good practice in their, in their gardens. Now, there were no mandatory targets included in that legislation. Yeah, wildflower meadows. Um, it was a voluntary agreement on pesticides, uh, and it led by some, backed by the, op the Labour opposition, or at least what is the Labour opposition at the, uh, tonight, um, to allege that farmers wouldn't even bother to read it, um, this uh, voluntary agreement, let alone do anything about it. And, of course, the scientists claimed that there hadn't been enough research to allow the links between specific flowering plants and bee food to be made, to which the farmers replied, as you might expect, well, the scientists would say that they hadn't had enough public money, wouldn't they? Um, we've got very different worldviews playing out again. Now, summarising about what I'm hesitating to call the birds and the bees... We really don't know why species and individual numbers vary so widely. And the uncertainty leaves even precautionary action stuck. We can't move. The main issue is one of causality. While everyone, well, mostly people agree that some species are disappearing, the cause is not agreed, and some groups of stakeholders exploit that gap. So they, they might say, for example, it's not land use change, it's hunting of small birds in Mediterranean fringes that's causing the decline in whatever it is. Or it's um, climate change, or the, in the case of the bees, it might be colony collapse disorder as a result of uh, varroa, which is a disease borne by mites, rather than the loss of the wildflower meadows. And if that's so, if that is true then we can continue intensifying the countryside because it's not making any difference. Now, whatever it is in the meantime, we in the UK struggle to hold a sensible debate and we actually achieve very little, even though scientists are indicating that we need more green space in cities and better habitat conservation in rural areas to preserve biodiversity and to preserve all forms of wildlife, not just the attractive ones, but the, ra the ravens and the snails, as well as the stone curlews. Okay, now conversely, there are one or two areas where scientists appear to have very little at all to add to the debate about the future of the UK's countryside. 
Fundamental to its tourism business and perhaps also to the sanity of many residents, our, what I think certainly, and I, I imagine many others, regard as a diverse and frequently beautiful scenery is, is a, a, a national asset. Rural scenery, of course, is not natural. It's an unnatural manufactured uh, thing. It's emerged from thousands of years of, uh, of human activity since the uh, Ice Age, uh, at the end of the Ice Age, and the glaciers retreated, during which we've cleared the forests, we've um, established villages, we've grazed and, and so on, uh, opened up transport. However, we generally find that outcome attractive, particularly when it's suitably tidy and almost manicured. We like that. What scientists deplore is the fragmentation of valuable habitats. Small, sharply bounded areas of protected land, such as ancient woodland, lack the scale and the continuity to be visually attractive, and also they're too limited and disconnected to allow animals to migrate or plants to colonise uh, in the advent, for example, as seems likely now, of, of substantial climate change. Now, those limited areas are one of the outcomes of the current legislation and the voluntary agreements on countryside protection. That's what we've told our farmers to do through our legislation. Superimposed onto that, we've got um, a, a debate about farming for those other things, not only the food, but also the wind turbines and the solar farms. Now, I think scientists don't have a lot to add to this debate. Actually, in my view, the far those kind of farms, this kind of picture is much less environmentally damaging than creeping loss of woodland and hedgerows, especially if managed sensitively. And, um, and they do reduce carbon emissions. But as lo at local level, they're often seen as unattractive and detrimental to tourism. So resolution at that, of that issue is largely a matter beyond the scientists, a scenery being, after all, largely in the mind of the beholder. I, um, for some people, wind turbines are beautiful, uh, and as beautiful perhaps as the Ribblehead Railway Viaduct, uh, which has been the subject of several paintings. And I've noticed, and I mentioned to you earlier, that the people in one of the earlier pictures, these people, I'm being told now that you can buy, in Japan, you can buy a tourism package which involves visiting oilseed rape fields in Cambridgeshire uh, and, and the Cotswolds, and, and there they are. Um, so, you know, what people find beautiful is probably not the subject for, for a scientific analysis. Now, I want to finish my examples of rural controversies by considering an issue with, which does have a bit of greater uh, scientific content, content. I live myself in a village, a hamlet actually, in Warwickshire, close to Stratford-upon-Avon. It's a largely arable area, close to the Vale of Evesham. And on several occasions in the 1980s, uh, our Victorian house, sorry, yes, our Victorian house and several of those of, uh, those of several of our neighbours was flooded by rain from thunderstorms running off rolled and compacted fields behind the house uh, that were awaiting planting with sp spring onions, actually. We know, we've lived there a long time, we know that over the years, pasture's been ploughed up and converted to arable, hedges have been removed, ditches abandoned, orchards felled, leaving a sandy, rather featureless, sloping wasteland. Now, frequently after rainfall, uh, the fine-grained silt washes from the fields down the lane into roadside drains, blocking them, leaving behind a stony, sandy residue. And that degraded deposit is then spread with uh, NPK fertiliser, it's harrowed and replanted. Um, very little crop rotation and huge loss of headlands, in which there used to be a lot of hares, actually, um, which we saw, but we failed to record 30 years ago. And to my mind, the single greatest challenge, environmental challenge in rural areas, it dwarfing all others but largely unrecognised, is one where we actually have very limited UK scientific research or teaching. As far as I'm aware, we only have one course now in the UK on soil management. In, in Scotland it is, actually. S soil loss and damage is very, very important, as this um, Sanskrit uh, quote uh, implies it's, I would say, 
Uh, it says, upon this handful of soil, our survival depends. Now, while it's literally and metaphorically beneath our feet and forgotten, whole civilizations have toppled as a result of soil damage. 95% of our food comes from soil, but we treat it, as the aphorism has it, like dirt. Internationally, it's estimated we need about 6 million hectares of new farmland every year to keep up with the increasing demand for food. In practice, we're losing twice that through soil degradation. Now, I'm not going to talk about tropical forests today, but I'm going to stick to the UK. Some UK soil problems are immediately visible, this kind of thing. Manifest on the surface, bare soil eroded away, producing gullies. Ruts in fields. Poached, what are called poached surfaces, resulting from overstocking with livestock. And uh, soil compaction from heavy machinery put onto large areas when the soil is too wet and degraded riverbanks, uh, resulting from reduced infiltration and a lot of runoff over the surface of the ground. So the implications of that for downstream flooding are, of course, obvious, as they were in my living room in the mid-1980s. Some losses we can't see, but they have been monitored. You can see some of the kinds of things that... Uh, uh, people have uh, alleged, and in this case it's the Scottish administration, I suppose that's also politically loaded tonight, but uh, um, these are the things that uh, um, the Scottish Government published uh, in 2014 about, sediment, uh, about soil degradation, all sorts of things. Loss of sediment from coniferous afforestation, that where the soil was ploughed uh, before the planting, um, the lost soil clogs river gravels and, and, and kills the fish, in fact, in that case. But it also damages soil in a way, this soil loss, that is not reversible without thousands of years of weathering. Uh, the changes in soil chemistry, such as loss of organic content uh, uh, and uh, some of those uh, other things that are on there, actual pollution as well, um, also generally unseen. And there are very few sites where soil characteristics have actually been monitored over time and therefore very little evidence that it's actually occurred, if indeed it has and if indeed it is significant. So we don't know, for example, whether the loss of organic matter and soil carbon to the atmosphere matters. Uh, we don't, in fact, really know whether it's occurred at all and if it has, where it's occurred. We would have to, for the purposes of the understanding the research, go back to that ergodic hypothesis again, the space-time substitution. In, um, late in 2014, Sheffield University scientists looked at the difference between allotments and arable soils nearby. And uh, uh, they asserted that in what they described as over-farming or intensive farming, there was a depletion in the soil, and they got it by, com by the comparison in space, not the comparison over time. So in allotments, there was 32% more organic carbon, 35% better carbon to nitrogen ratio, 25% more nitrogen, and less compaction, for example, in the allotment soils. Okay? So the, um, that is evidence of a sort. And as a result of that, the EU identified, not as a result of this, but similar evidence, the EU identified an emerging problem with this. They said this loss of natural capital must be remedied, and they attempted to introduce a European Soil Framework Directive to protect the soil. It was thrown out last year following complaints by the UK and a coalition of France, Germany, the Netherlands and Austria, so... I suppose we do share something with our European neighbours. Um, European, uh, sorry, UK farmers lobbied that there was no need for additional legislation. It was unnecessary red tape. And the National Union of Farmers said that soils were already protected by laws and other measures, including the Common Agricultural Policy, Agri-Environment Scheme Agreements and the Water Framework Directive. So farmers, um, had a, they said, farmers have an interest in maintaining the condition of the land and that redundant soil protection framework would cost more than the benefits. They wanted deregulation 
Um, actually, I was rather amused by George Monbiot in The Guardian. He said the UK has been deregulated to death, which uh, is quite a nice phrase. But they said... Uh, one thing which I did agree with in the NFU, new legislative measures should only be introduced after the effectiveness of existing policies have been understood and evaluated. However, we do seem to, nevertheless to have a problem. Now, even that, and I'm going to skip very quickly over this, even that is contested. There have been studies uh, of sedimentation, where the sediment goes to when it comes off the fields, this is an example of a piece of French research. It's on a lake in France. And what people look at is the sandwich. It's like a club sandwich in the bed of the reservoir where the sediment ends up. And because we can date that sandwich in terms of uh, radioactive carbon and, and so on, carbon-14, we can establish the rates of soil loss because it's trapped in the lake. Uh, this is a, a, an 11th century pond, drains 24 square kilometres, and... Cutting things very, uh, summarising very briefly, the analysis, and it, this is an odd diagram, it reads from right to left, unlike most graphs, it shows that rates of sediment before 1950, on the far side there, were almost zero. Uh, from the 11th century to 1950, you see there's 40 tonnes per year, uh, right at the bottom there. And then suddenly, in around about 1950 or somewhere in that period, um, rates go through the roof, and then they gradually fall again with a bit of a pulse uh, in 1992. And then, and, then, and then a fall, perhaps, as land is consolidated. Now, the sediment loss from the field today is still 60 times what it was before uh, the agricultural activity became significant. But there are clearly very big error margins. Uh, and again, some people said it's climate change. There's another one here, I won't go into details, a very similar thing um, relating to sedimentation in the UK. Now, uh, again, in this case, the, uh, it reads from right to left, and it's a, uh, and it's a much longer-term uh, analysis. If we take uh, stuff of this sort, I think the science in this case is now pretty compelling. But modern agricultural practices, uh, that modern agricultural practices are damaging soils. Whether that will be reflected in policy is an interesting question, but I won't be holding my breath on that. I want to conclude by just reflecting on how we do progress in addressing those challenges. None of the legislation that we have, none of the voluntary agreements or the free market seem to have resulted in beneficial adjustments to agricultural practices, in my view. There are suggestions about what we could do. Precision farming is one that's going on now it's very expensive. I think it's pretty marginal in its impact. Um, genetically modified organisms is another one. A bit disappointing so far, actually. Um, organic production is, in my view, almost a non-starter. The yields are too low. Um, you get In rural areas, you get things like this. Vertical food production in London, for example. And, and hydroponics is another. Growing things without soil. Um, and different cultivations, such as zero tillage. You still need large machinery, though. Um, now, um, all of those could uh, yield some benefit. And as the scientists usually say, we need more research, because that keeps us in work. Um, but before we can even have the debate, and this is the point I want to end with, before we can even have the debate, we need a mechanism for valuing the services that these assets, our natural capital, provide. That would enable us to see what costs might be acceptable in order to keep the services and to, to actually talk about it in very heated uh, arguments. Now, um, there, is, there is a mechanism. It involves uh, costing things using something called ecosystem services valuation. It's uncomfortable territory for a lot of people. Whilst you might feel comfortable in saying, well, the loss of the bees is going to cost us so much, it would require you to put a, a cost on things like birdsong, uh, which is much more difficult, or a wounded badger's misery, let's say, or the scenic value of a stand of trees. And that becomes very much more difficult, and people are uncomfortable at quantifying it. So at the moment, we have only half of the, direct, of the dictionary that we need for 
translating conversations from one group to another. We have some suggestions about ecosystem services and how that might be used to broker discussions between scientists uh, and, and, uh, and decision makers, but not all. The UK government in 2011 signed up to a white paper and it said, it was called The Natural Choice, and it said to be the first, they want to be the first generation to leave the natural environment in a better state. Um, and I would say, in order to do that, uh, we need to better deliver necessities such as food, for example. There's an, I've described it as a need for bites, B-I-T-E-S, rather than bites, B-Y-T-E-S, information. Um, we need new technologies, we need new attitudes alongside the means of negotiating. Thank you.